You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. From artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors, I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. Kate Bagnall is a historian and expert on Chinese migration in Australia. Kate's fascination with China started decades ago, and she's currently co-editing a publication on Chinese-Australian women, from some of the earliest women who settled here. It's an important initiative because, as Kate says, we tend to think of Chinese-Australian history as a history of men, and there isn't much information around on the contribution or participation of Chinese women in Australian life. Kate is slowly uncovering some of this history and she's finding stories that do need to be told. There's other academic research by Alana Camp, actually, about the erasure of Chinese-Australian women from our history books and from research. Kate, along with nine other historians, is looking to change that. All right, thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. It's a real pleasure. Now, Kate, you're a historian and you specialise in Chinese migration and settlement into Australia. It's a very specific area of research. Can you tell listeners, you know, what it is that you do as a historian, where you do your research and where this interest came from? Sure. I'm a historian working at the University of Wollongong at the moment. I'm an ARC DECRA research fellow there. Um, And... I research, as you said, Chinese-Australian history. Particularly, I'm interested in New South Wales, in Sydney, and especially in the history of women and children and families. Um, So that's both Chinese families, so Chinese families who came out from China, but also Chinese families who grew up here and mixed-race families as well. Um, And my interest in this came from um, really going to live in Guangdong in 1997, so more than 20 years ago now. I finished a degree in history at the University of Sydney and looking around for something to do for a year or so, I um, found a job working at an an English school in the city of Zhuhai in Guangdong. And that really is where my interest came from. Um, The people, lots of the people that I met living in Guangdong they could trace um, their own heritage. They had a grandfather or a great-grandfather who'd gone to America or Canada or to Australia, and that really sparked my interest in understanding more about the connections that there were between um, people in Guangdong today and um, places like Australia. Mm. Now, let's be clear, you are actually not from Chinese heritage. Where were you born? I was and born in your- Sydney. And what's your cultural heritage? So I was born in Sydney and I'm um, descended from Irish, Scots and German um, ancestors. Right. So you, why the interest even in going on that one year, you know, thing when you were a student or, or think, one year, you know, away? Yeah. Um, so sort of Hong Kong has, has been a place that I've visited quite a lot um, growing up because I had family who were living in Hong Kong. And so I'd been on family trips to Hong Kong, um, even into China itself on a family holiday. Um, and so I guess when the opportunity came up to see a different part of the world, um, to have that sort of immersive experience, living somewhere different, learning a bit of a different language, um, that really appealed to me, I think. 
So what does Lunar New Year mean to you then? I mean, is it something that you acknowledge or celebrate? Uh, For me, Lunar New Year mostly means really good memories of family and friends and um, times that I've spent celebrating Chinese New Year in China. Um, About two weeks after I first went to live in China in 1997, it was Chinese New Year. And I was really fortunate to get to share in um, sort of the celebrations with um, my new colleagues at the school that I was was working in. Um, And since then, I've been able to spend Chinese New Year there um, a couple of other times. Um, So those really strong, happy memories of, of being with people, you know, old friends and new, I think. So is it something that is, apart from the time that you've spent overseas, is it something that you celebrate now? Because I understand your daughter is of Chinese heritage. Yeah, so my um, my daughter's um, dad is Chinese and it's certainly something that when she was little um, that we celebrated with her um, and she is very... Um, you know, in our family, she gets the red packets from her Chinese family, <laughs> which none of the rest of us do. So she she she's pretty happy about that. Um, but I, but I think too that as a historian, you know, Chinese New Year means something else to me as well, and that is that it's a it's a holiday, a festival that we've been celebrating in Australia for more than 150 years, and that's mm. probably something that a lot of people don't realise that there's a really long history of celebrating Lunar New Year in Australia as well. Mm, absolutely. Um, now, one of the works, I mean, you've done research in all sorts of different aspects of um, Chinese in Australia, but one of the works that I'm really interested in is something that you uh, that is soon to come out, and that is specifically on women. Can you tell us a bit about the the research and the book that you are about to release? Yeah, so the book that we've put together, it's a co-edited volume. So myself and my colleague Julia Martinez at the University of Wollongong, we've worked with nine other Australian historians um, to put together a volume that is is really the first um, history that looks at Chinese Australian women and particularly Chinese Australian women who are mobile. And so by that we mean both women who were migrating from China and women of Chinese background who were born in Australia who were travelling overseas back to China and to other places as well. So the volume looks at um, some of the really early women who came to Australia and those um, more recently sort of up to the 1950s as well. And so why have you chosen to write about this? In Australian history, we we really tend to think about Chinese Australian history as being a history of men. You know, we the, the histories that we know best are the, about the goldfields, about market gardening, about storekeeping, and all of those things are very sort of masculine histories. Mm-hmm. But um, underneath that, there is a history of women and of families that really, I think, deserves to be told as well. Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the interesting things when I was doing some research myself, I looked uh, up the entries or the research uh, for Chinese Australians in Sydney in the Dictionary of Sydney, which is archived at the State Library of New South Wales and, and, and maintained by the State Library of New South Wales. And of all of the names of um, people and organisations in that research, I counted uh, I think it was about approximately 50 names that were Chinese men 
four names of non-Chinese women and zero names of Chinese women in the it mentioned at all in the research in in the dictionary of Sydney. And that was quite a surprise to me until I started digging further, and you would obviously be very familiar with this, until I discovered it was a thing. Uh, there, there, there were even papers written about the erasure of Chinese-Australian women from 20th century history in, you know, in Australia. Why is that? <laughs> I think, I mean, the, the first thing that we have, we have to understand is that the numbers of Chinese women who came to Australia, particularly during the, the 19th century and up to the Second World War, were really very, very small. So at the time of the gold rushes, when you had tens of thousands of Chinese men coming out to work on the gold fields, you had dozens of Chinese women. Mm. So um, the, there's always been this assumption that because there were not very many women, there's not really much of a history to tell. Um, and that's uh, obviously, you know, when you think about the gold rushes, there, there weren't very many women that we, we know about who were Chinese women who were, who were on the gold fields as well. But I don't think that that means that we shouldn't be looking for their histories. Um, and, in fact, by the turn of the century, you know, there are um, sort of uh, probably about 2,000 women of Chinese background living in Australia. So some of those are migrant Chinese women. Some of those are Australian-born women who have two Chinese parents. But many others of them are mixed-race um, women. So there was a lot of intermarriage between Chinese men and white women in New South Wales. And so those mixed-race Chinese women also um, were part of that Chinese community. Mm. I suppose there's also, I think that one of the reasons I haven't even bothered going too far in my own family history is because I know how poor the records are. It wasn't much of a priority to keep really good records, you know, births, deaths, marriages or whatever, uh, and to particularly in recording the, the women's names probably. So there possibly is, is some level of that. I imagine it could be some people might say, oh, well, maybe they didn't do anything significant. But I'm interested in your book because tell us about some of the women in this book, what they did that was significant enough for you to then include them in it. I'd love to hear. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that, that you're right about the sources, you know, that, that it, it has been difficult for um, historians to uncover the stories of Chinese women's lives. Um, but probably less difficult than we might think. Um, we just, as historians, have to be a bit creative and a bit imaginative and make the best out of the sources that, that we do have. Um, recently, I've been doing some work trying to uncover the names of some of the very earliest Chinese women who were living in New South Wales. And we're talking about women who came in the 1860s, so the time of the gold rushes. Um, in the 1871 census, there were 12 Chinese women noted as living in New South Wales. Um, and I've managed to track down the identities of four of those women. So that's a third of the, the female Chinese population at that time. Yeah. Um, but really that requires us to think creatively about the sources we use. And in fact, the records of birth are one of the most significant sources that we have for tracing those women's lives because they were coming to New South Wales as wives and as potential wives. So, you know, that they, and then obviously once they're married, they're having babies. So those records really are, are probably often the, the only tangible record we have of those women having been here in Australia. 
Tell us about a couple of the most interesting ones or your favourite ones and why. Uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you about one of my favourite ones, um, and that's the earliest the earliest Chinese woman whose name I've been able to find who came to New South Wales. And I think that, that her story in particular is really fascinating because it I think it challenges some of the assumptions that we might have about those early Chinese women in Australia. Um, I think we might have the idea that they had bound feet, that they live very cloistered, kind of sheltered lives. Um, but the research that I've been doing has been suggesting um, something a bit different. So this woman that I've been looking at, her name is Ahap, and she arrived in New South Wales in the early 1860s. And the first record we have of her is actually about a court case that she was involved in in Sydney in 1863. And she was suing her employer for failure to pay her wages. So she was in New South Wales, in Sydney, living at Balmain and working as a domestic servant in a um, British family home. Mm. Um, and she had, I think, really had the, had the courage to take her employer to court to sue him um, for, for wages that he hadn't paid her. Um, unfortunately, her case was not successful. Oh. But we do, we do, and and unfortunately, that there's only this tiny, tiny snippet about the court case that's that's published in the newspaper. Um, but we do then see her through the birth records. Um, we we're able to trace her over the next ten years and know something something more about her life. So she from Sydney. She, within a year of that court case, she had moved um, north to Port Stephens and she lived in a fishing village um, near the Nelson's Bay Lighthouse. And there was a, a Chinese village there of about 80 Chinese men and her um, and the Chinese worked as fishermen who sent their catch down to Sydney um, to be processed and, and um, usually salted. Um, so she and one other European women were the only non-Indigenous women who were living in the sort of Nelson's Bay area at that time. Wow. And so both of those women were, had babies and um, we have the record that um, the lighthouse keeper's wife assisted Ahap with the delivery of her babies. Wow, I wonder if her descendants are around today. <laughs> well, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question because after the birth of her last child in 1870, so she had four sons, and after the birth of that last baby, we lose any track of her or, in fact, of her husband as well. Oh. Um, so I suspect that they may well have returned to Hong Kong and to China because that was um, in other examples of, of women who's, whose lives I've been tracking. Um, that's something that I know that they actually did. So it suggests, you know, the fact that I can't find um, the children being grown up and married or death certificates, that sort of thing, or other records of them in the newspaper um, suggests to me that, that they probably went back to China. Yes. Now, I love the fact that this book is coming out um, even to, uh, because A, it's interesting, and but B, to compensate for the fact that there has been a thing that is the erasure of Chinese women from, uh, Chinese Australian women from 20th century history. So hopefully we're re you're redressing the balance a little bit with this publication. Who else is fascinating and interesting that uh, that you researched and discovered? Uh, so another chapter, or my, my chapter, my contribution to that book is about um, a woman who uh, 
came to Australia in the early 20th century and she was involved in one of the, the very major sort of cases around the white Australia policy in the early 1910s. Um, and she came out to Australia um, as the wife of a greengrocer and they lived in Horsham in Victoria. And um, so she was allowed into Australia under the White Australia policy on a short-term, what's effectively a short-term visa. She was allowed to come out and visit her husband and then um, and then go home. But, in fact, um, she had a, she fell pregnant and she had one baby and then she fell pregnant and she had another baby. And so the government couldn't send her, send her out of Australia again because, obviously, at that time there was a lengthy ship, ship's voyage um, mm. to leave to go back to Hong Kong. So eventually, after years, the government got very frustrated with her husband um, because he kept saying, no, no, my wife is too ill, she's having a baby, the baby is ill, um, and eventually the government um, gave the family a deportation order. But what's really interesting around this case is that the Pungui family, that's their name, um, they were Christian and they were really kind of really respectable, decent, hardworking members of their local community in, in Geelong where they, where they set up home mm. together. Um, and so the, their church and Christian churches around Australia um, really lobbied the government for the right for Mrs Poongui to stay in Australia and although they were ultimately unsuccessful, it was a really embarrassing point um, in time for the government around the White Australia policy and around the the, um, the unfairness of it, that we had a good, decent, honest, respectable family who were being split up because just because of their race um, and the government was very embarrassed by, by this case. When you're doing your research, there are obviously the conventional ways that you would think of, you know, government records for one, mm -hmm. um, newspaper articles. Have any, during the course of your research, have you discovered things in sort of more non-traditional ways or, or, or just through talking maybe to great, great grandchildren that you've found somewhere or anything like that? Or has it yeah. been more traditional? No, I mean, oral history is a really important way that we can uncover women's stories. Um, one of the chapters in our book by Alana Camp at Western Sydney University, she's done interviews with um, Chinese-Australian women in Sydney who um, sort of had lived in Australia over the 20th century. So she was looking at, at the 20th century up into a later period, and so she was able to talk to those women themselves about their own experiences of migration, um, of employment, of family, but also the stories of their mothers and their grandmothers as well. Um, so obviously if you're writing kind of the more recent history, there are um, other ways other than sort of archives and documentary records to, to be tracking down those histories. Mm -hmm. um, but in if we're looking at families who were here in the 19th century, often their descendants don't know a lot about about those those early families and about their early lives, so we are more reliant on um, the the archives. With the, you know so much expertise on Chinese migration in Australia and particularly New South Wales, if you want to focus on New South Wales, what would you say have been the biggest sort of milestones or trends or patterns that you've seen over the late eighteen hundreds to now? 
You mean within the uh, trends about the, the Chinese community or in Australia or? Um, trends, tr- firstly, trends about migration, but if there are any um, particular trends about the Chinese community, whether that's behaviours or, or, or where they or demographics, yeah, I'd love to hear yeah. that too. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that, that the difference between today's um, Chinese-Australian community and the early Chinese community is that um, up until really about the 1980s, 1990s, um, Australia's Chinese communities were predominantly Cantonese. So um, up until that time, Cantonese was really the only Chinese language that was spoken extensively in Australia. Um, and so a lot of those, the descendants of those early families track their, their roots back to, there's about 12 counties in Guangdong province where those those um, early migrants came from and then others who, who settled in Hong Kong and migration from there. Um, so um, it, it's interesting that if you look at Australia as a whole, in New South Wales those um, migrants came from um, a more diverse rate, number of those counties. In Victoria they came from um, a smaller number of counties. Um, so that's the, the first kind of big difference between the old Chinese communities in Australia and the more recent ones. Obviously, mm. since since the Second World War, the Colombo Plan, um, then with Tiananmen in the late 80s, and then more recently we have many more um, migrant Chinese who've come from um, non-Cantonese-speaking speaking places, and I think now Mandarin is the most widely spoken um, Chinese language in Australia. Right. I, that's really interesting because my parents migrated to Sydney in 1975 and when they sort of formed their own uh, groups of friends with people from the Chinese community, I never felt at home at all in that space because I think you've just identified it, which is we came from a non-Cantonese speaking background mm. and, and I didn't understand a word anyone else was saying. Um, can you speak any languages? Uh, I can speak a bit of Mandarin and a very bad bit of Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> so when you do your trips, because you do do regular trips to um, China and Hong Kong and, and, and other places, is part of that part of your research? Like do you take the research from here and kind of start going down a rabbit hole and, and seeing where it leads to up the chain, so to speak, or is it just because you ha- are having fun and like to eat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like to have fun and like to eat and I like to travel. Um, but one of the things that I've I've been doing is trying to track back um, from the, the families that I have been researching in New South Wales and tracking, tracking those families back to their origins in Guangdong, um, so one of the things that I was very interested in is the, the number of Australian-born children, including mixed-race children, and their white mums who went back to live in Hong Kong and Guangdong sort of from the wow. 1860s to the 1930s. Um, so that's something that really interested me as a, as a white Australian woman having been in China and, and lived in that kind of environment, it really fascinated me that, you know, 100 years earlier there were other Australian women who were doing similarly. Um, so um, so that's one of the things that, that I've been doing, kind of travelling back and forth. Um, and so, that, but on that, on that point then, what, I mean, that, that, is, that is fascinating, particularly 100 years ago or whenever it was, a long time ago. Uh, did you discover anything interesting about their or, or, or any commonalities in their experiences when they, when they went and did that? 
Um, it's, I mean, it's really interesting that the records, the records that we have are about those women and their children who found being in China really difficult, um, having grown up in Australia and uh, even Australian-born full Chinese children, so with a Chinese mum and dad, um, going back to live in China was could be really difficult because they grow up as Australians mm. um, and then they go back to China and they're expected to fit in um, with their Chinese families. Um, often families went back to live in their, rural, their sort of ancestral villages in, in the countryside. Um, so if you've gone from living in, in a city, Sydney or Melbourne, and you suddenly um, find yourself in the Chinese countryside, it's a very different environment in, in so many ways. So a lot of the records we have about families who were wanting help in coming back to Australia um, because they, they kind of found that living in China wasn't, wasn't right for them. Um, but we have other, we do have some other accounts about um, families who just kind of made that their new home. Um, and um, it's really interesting to me the, the adaptation that white Australian wives and mothers made in some cases to living in those Chinese families. Yeah, fascinating. So um, you may or may not be able to answer this question, but obviously Chinese communities developed in, you know, Sydney or Melbourne or Nelson Bay, as you yeah. mentioned before. Were there any commonalities in the, in the way the communities developed or any really distinguishing features between, between one geographic um, area compared to another? Mm. I mean, I, th I think one of the, th the differences between Sydney and Melbourne, for example, is that um, if you go to Melbourne today and you go to Chinatown, which is um, based along Little Burke Street, that's mm. the original site of Melbourne's Chinatown. It's been there since the 1850s. And yep. so lots of those, those buildings and the Chinese community associations, um, they're in the same places that they were 100, 150 years ago. Um, in Sydney, by contrast, Sydney's Chinatown has moved a number of times. Um, so in the 1860s to the 1880s, it was down in the rocks, so right at the port where ships were coming in. And that was a practical reason because um, Chinese migrants would come off the ships, um, they would need somewhere to stay, they would need to provision themselves for going to the goldfields, um, so they would stay right there at the port. Um, and then later on in the 20th, uh, the 19th century, sorry, um, in the 1880s and 1890s, um, the demographics of the, the Chinese community changes and it's gone from gold miners to market gardeners to um, people who run grocery stores and fruit shops. And so the Chinese community then shifts south in Sydney down towards where it is now in the Haymarket and Surrey Hills. Yeah, so, I mean, the you know, the, the Chinese um Chinese neighbourhoods in Sydney have, have um, I think they've gone through quite a number of stages of changes. Um, in the early 20th century, um, the Chinese community was more based around in Surrey Hills. Um, mm. And at that time, the city government decided that they needed to widen the roads and build um, new buildings. And so a lot of the, the Chinese neighbourhoods were, um, were raised um, to widen the streets, um, and so it shifted um, from Surrey Hills to the Haymarket. Um, but even in Haymarket today, I mean, you know, the 
we're used to see Dixon Street with the the Paifang, the the, the arches at the the end of um, yeah. Dixon Street. Um, but I mean that that sort of idea of Chinatown has come since the 1970s and 1980s. Um, but for a long time over the 20th century, Chinatown was really a very local community um, where nobody really went unless you were Chinese. Yeah. Yes, yes. All right, so um, in the so we've got the year of the pig coming up. What uh, are you most looking forward to in the year of the pig? <laughs> um, I you know the, uh, I'm really looking forward to celebrating with my kids and spending time with my family. Um, my daughter is going back to China for unfortunately she has to come back to school before Chinese New Year, but um, she'll be visiting her grandparents and um, family over there, and I'm looking forward to hearing her stories um, about about celebrating New Year. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Kate. 2019 is the year of the pig. The pig is one of the animals of the Chinese zodiac, which runs in a 12-year cycle, and the pig is actually the last one. So the order of the cycle starts with the rat, and then the ox, tiger, rabbit, dragon, snake, horse, sheep, sometimes known as goat, monkey, rooster, dog, and then lastly, the pig. These are the same in Korean culture. However, in Vietnamese culture, instead of the rabbit, it's the cat. Next time the year of the pig comes around will be 2031. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at ValerieKoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with future episodes, go to newstories.net.au.